Welcome to the Jewish Education Experience Podcast with your hosts, Yasmina and Ari, who will be uncovering gems of wisdom with Jewish educators from around the world. To support our podcast, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash Jewish Education Experience Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Sandra Lilienthal. Dr. Sandra Lilienthal is a sought-after speaker who is known for drawing adult audiences into the relevant wisdom and inspiring potential of Jewish texts. Born and raised in Brazil and currently residing in Florida, Dr. Lilienthal has taught diverse audiences all over the world. She is a faculty member of the Hebrew University's Florence Melton School of Adult Jewish Learning, an adjunct professor at Gratz College, and a member of JNF Speakers Bureau. Dr. Lilienthal has served as the education director of Rabbi Adin Steinzaltz's Global Day of Jewish Learning, and she is on the boards of Limud North America and New Cage. She was the 2015 recipient of the prestigious Covenant Award for Excellence in Jewish Education. She is the author of the Living Wisdom and the Pillars of Judaism series of curricula for adults. And throughout her career, she has worked in every capacity of Jewish education and with every age, from religious school teacher to B'nai Mitzvah tutor to director of education and director of lifelong learning. Since 2005, her focus has been on teaching adults. Dr. Lilienthal has partnered with two other Jewish educators to create Door the Door Delivery, which offers learning opportunities for both Jewish educators and adult learners. Hello, Sandra. Welcome to the Jewish Education Experience Podcast. Thank you for being with us today. Hi, Yasmina. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here tonight. Really, it's a pleasure for us, too. I'm so excited to talk with you. And you mentioned that you're from Brazil, and I am so interested in learning a little bit about that. Will you tell us a bit more about yourself and how you began your journey in Jewish education? Of course. So I have a very atypical story in many ways. I grew up in a very secular family in Sao Paulo, Brazil. My grandparents were Holocaust survivors and wanted nothing to do with Judaism. So I grew up with two dinners every year, and and I called them family dinners, but family was only my mom, my dad, the three of us. I have two younger brothers, and that was it. We had no other relatives that had survived the war. So we had two family dinners, and one was the hard-boiled egg dinner, and the other one was the challah and honey dinner. And that's how we referred to them. I mean, I had I didn't even know that there was such a thing as a Seder or a Rosh Hashanah dinner, nothing like that. And the first contact that I had with Judaism was really when my brothers, who are two, they're twins, and they're two and a half years younger than I, they turned 12, and then people decided, oh, you need a bar mitzvah which was completely out of context for all of us. And they suffered through a full year of preparation for the bar mitzvah, hating every second of it because they had no idea what that meant and why they were doing this. And uh, then they had their ceremony and their ceremony was not even in a synagogue because my parents didn't want to go to a synagogue. So we had it at a catering hall and the rabbi brought a Torah scroll, and that's where the service happened. Wow. And I fell in love with it. And right after that, I decided that I needed to start getting a little bit more involved in Judaism, learning a little more. And I was 16 at the time. So my journey started at that point. And very slow journey, but I started learning more. And I started um, working as a counselor in a Jewish camp even though the campers had a lot more knowledge than I had. But I had experience as a camper in a secular camp. So, you know, it it helped. Slowly but surely, I became interested in Judaism. I started learning a lot. I went to school for business administration, had got my degree, went to work in business. And 10 years later, I felt that I had to go share my passion for Judaism with others. And at that point, I switched careers and started teaching at the synagogue, the large uh, reform synagogue in Rio. I was living in Rio at that time. And uh, basically, the rest is history. I taught every single age from preschool to adults. 
I sat on the floor playing guitar and teaching Hebrew to little kids as much as I taught adults. I prepared a lot of boys and girls for their bar and bat mitzvah ceremonies. For the last 20 years or so, I've been focusing on adult education. So I know we started talking a little bit about this before we started recording. What's the Orthodox community like in Brazil? Are there Orthodox shuls or is it mainly secular across the board? No, they do have, uh, first of all, Chabad is very big in Brazil. I think Chabad is big all around the world, but also there is a significant Orthodox Sephardic community in Sao Paulo, less so in Rio. In Sao Paulo, they're more present. Um, And there are several Orthodox non-Hasidic synagogues as well. So it's a pretty, you know, diverse community. So we know just from the Inquisition that there's pretty much always been a presence of you know, Spanish, Portuguese, Sparty Jews. Has that always been the case in Brazil? Has it kind of fluctuated to where it has been more of an influx of Ashkenazi Jews and now it's more of a mix, would you say? So it's interesting because every time I say I'm from Brazil, the first question I get is, oh, are you Sephardic Jew? And I say, no, no, everybody's from Poland in my family. All my ancestors are from Poland. The truth is that the majority of the Sephardic population that lives in Brazil is not stemming from those that came in the 15 and 1600s. Okay. Those mainly because of how difficult it was to be a Jew, most of those people, they didn't survive as Jews in three or four generations. So the majority of Sephardic Jews that we have today in Brazil actually came from Morocco, Egypt, and then Lebanon, Syria, you know, but basically in the 19th and 20th century, mostly 20th century. Okay. Very interesting. Wow. So how did you end up coming to the U.S.? So my story, you know, I get involved in Jewish education and I'm teaching at a synagogue. I'm hired to teach at a synagogue. Our rabbi left and actually came to California and they started searching for a new rabbi and long story made very short. We ended up dating and I got married to the rabbi and uh, we had our first child still in Brazil and then decided that we wanted to raise children in a different situation. For many reasons, Brazil was not the place where we wanted to raise our kids. And so we started looking and first he got an offer in Waco, Texas. So we moved to Waco. Talk about being Jewish in different places. Seriously. Um, wow. <laughs> and I do have a Jewish child born in Waco. That's my middle one. And then after three years, we decided it was time to leave. And uh, he had a position in South Florida. So we came to South Florida and uh, I've been here ever since. So cool. Oh, my goodness. Well, since you started your journey and you became more interested in education, are there any educators that have inspired you or whom you particularly admire? So I think the first person that really took me under his wings was an old Moroccan Jew. When he saw my interest, he was not a rabbi, even though years later he became a rabbi, he did get smicha. But when he saw my interest, he just opened his arms figuratively and said, anything that you want to learn, feel free to come to me. And he was just an incredible human being. So he he really inspired me and taught me something very important about education, which is when you're teaching, you're inspiring through the heart, not through the intellect. So I, I have to thank him, you know, as the first person that really inspired me. Later on in my life, I've been blessed to learn with people that are amazing. When I started in the United States as a young educator, I had the chance to learn with Rivi Pupko-Klitenik from Seattle, who is amazing, and Sunny Epstein from Philly, who is also incredible. And throughout the years, I've had the privilege to learn with people like Erica Brown, who I think is a role model for education in every possible way. Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik is another one of my favorite educators. Rabbi Johnny Solomon, who I know you interviewed, love learning with him. 
And many of my colleagues from, from the Covenant family, I've been exposed to incredible educators through the hands of Harleen Appleman, who is also somebody that has touched so many of us as educators and taught us so much. I can't do justice because there are so many amazing educators out there. It's difficult to pinpoint just a few, but these are a few of the the names that come to mind. It really is amazing to see how many wonderful Jewish educators there are and and non-Jewish too, just the impact that we can have on people. Like you said, you were so inspired by the initial rabbi who said, anything you want to learn, you know, I'll, I'll happily teach you and be there for you. And sometimes all it needs is that little spark of highlighting that flame, that pilot light, and then you'll develop a lifelong learner, you know? Right. It's that's, that's really our goal, right? It's to really inspire our students to want to continue education or chinuch, it could be a little bit of an amorphous term. How would you define education? I'm going to stick to Jewish education just because that's what we're talking about. But I think that it, what I'm going to say is valid for education in general as well. I think we tend to focus too much on bringing knowledge. And I honestly think education is bringing connection, opening pathways to connection. That is what I see the job of a a Jewish educator is, especially in this day and age, when there is no knowledge that I can bring to a student that the student can't find online on his or her own. They don't need me to find information. All it needs is, you know, it takes your phone and Google. What I offer is the connection. That's what I think is Jewish education. It is bringing people to pathways that help them connect to a tradition that is thousands of years old, whether it is a connection to God, which for many of us it is, or a connection to tradition, to what we've been doing in the last 3,000 years, I think that that's what we do with education. That's our role. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Piggybacking off of that, now you're working mainly with adults, right? So what does that look like? What kind of classes or how does that education look now for you? So I do a lot of different things, but mainly I have weekly classes with people that have have been learning with me for a long time. And because I teach adults, there's one big difference. And one of the things that I love about teaching adults when compared to teaching grade school, no matter what the grade is, or even college, which is I don't have to have a lesson plan. I don't need to stick to a plan. I don't have the fourth grade teacher who is depending on the third grade teacher to teach that which the child will need when they move on. I don't have that. I also don't have tests and I don't have, you know, certificates to give to anyone. So what happens in an adult classroom is, first of all, my learners actually choose what they want to learn. So before a semester starts, I ask them, what do you guys want to learn? And so we've done many different things because It doesn't have to always be text or always be um, holidays or always be history. It it can be so many different things. And even in any given class, I have an idea of what I'm going to do. I come prepared to do that. But if somebody asks a question and I see that the whole class has the interest in switching, I never have to say, I'm so sorry, this is a great question, but it's off topic let me go back to where we were. I don't have to do that because I do not have any rules of what I have to complete at the end of the class or at the end of the course. Right. So that is one of the beauties of teaching adults. I basically teach what they want to learn. How many classes do you typically teach and how many students per class? Do you have a set number or does it vary? So in person, of course, we were more limited than now when we're online. Online, I can certainly do 
more. I will say that I like to work with up to 49 students online. And the reason for the number 49 is only because that's how many, you know, how many screens I can have on my computer screen okay. on a Zoom call. I like to be able to see everybody. I don't want to scroll to be able to see who else is there. Online, I do about 49 students. And in person, though, I had it limited to 25, 30 in very specific situations. That's for my weekly classes, my regular classes. So my regular classes, some are smaller. Some have 10 to 12 students. Some have 25. And now online, many times more than that. Then I also do speaking events at congregations that call me to do a sisterhood program or to do a scholar in residence weekend. So then, of course, it's a lot more people. And what all of these things have in common is that I always work with either the students or the organization that is hiring me to develop whatever it is that they want to learn. So when people say to me, well, what are the topics you teach? I go, look, no, <laughs> the wrong question, right? I do have topics I don't teach. And that's because if it's something that I don't feel that I know enough about, I don't want to teach. Sure. Now, it's not that I think that I need to know everything. You know, there are times when questions are asked in a class and in a topic that I am familiar with and I'm teaching it and somebody asks a question, I don't know the answer. It's fine. I'm not um, afraid of saying, I don't know. I'll bring you an answer next time I see you and then find the answer. But if it's a topic that I'm not familiar with, I do not teach it. That makes sense. Have you had that happen when you're asked to speak in front of a congregation? Sometimes I've had, for example, a congregation that said, can you do a weekend on Kabbalistic thought? And, and I said, no, I can't. That's one of the things I don't do. Okay. I don't understand enough Kabbalah to be able to teach it. Yeah, I totally get that. It's how often do you typically travel with speaking? I know I'm sure it changed with COVID and changed a lot. Um, I have done look when my kids were younger. It also my kids are now out of the house when they were younger. It was a little harder to travel more. Once they left the house, I was doing about one a month because I don't want to do more than that. You know, Shabbat is also my time for me. It's my day of rest. It's I like to be with my family, with my community. So I don't like doing more than that. But I was up to about once a month. And how many children do you have? I have three kids, three girls. Okay. They're all adults now. Are any of them educators? My oldest is an educator and made Aliyah and uh, lives in Israel where she both learns and teaches. Wow. So cool. Oh, my goodness. I'm actually very curious because you you said your parents, they wanted nothing to do with religion. How did they feel about you deciding to become more observant and, you know, explore more and everything? How did they feel about that? It was very hard for my parents because in the beginning, uh, not only did they not understand what I was doing, you know, they, to a certain extent, felt that I was turning my back to everything they had taught me, which was Mm -hmm. never the case. Uh, They also didn't understand the language, didn't understand the concept. When I say language, I don't mean, you know, the actual language. I mean, the, the whole idea of an observant Jew. I remember even my grandmother, who at the time was still alive, my grandmother turned to me and said, I don't understand. You're a smart person. Why do you think you can't answer a phone on Saturday? That's ridiculous. That's not work. You know, so so it was very hard for them. And for my grandparents, I think it was hard because they had turned their back on that, yeah. given what they had gone through in life. So it was for them sort of like, oh, my gosh, we went through so much to become different. And now she sort of was going back to where we came from. That changed after a while. Um, In the beginning, for example, my mother was very concerned that my children were very sheltered, that they weren't being exposed to the real world, which was never really the case. And my children are adults and very well adjusted to the world and they do everything everybody does, you know. So as my parents saw that this was not a 
crazy decision that would last for a year. And when we saw that it did not take us away from them, I think it became a little easier. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I cannot even imagine what that must have been like for them to experience that. But wow, thank God that you guys were able to have a life in in Brazil and now you have children and it's like the family continues. Absolutely. And um, my oldest uh, is the one in Israel is married with a child. So, you know, you now see the next generation, which is very special. It, It really is. How do you open up the conversation to talk about God? That's an excellent question. I think this is one of the issues we have in Jewish education. We don't like to talk about God. And I don't understand how we can talk about religion and not talk about God. So, so true. When, when I talk to adults, the first thing I need to do is get rid of that image that they have of an old man sitting on a throne with a white beard. And I say to them, you know, if that's the way you imagine God, just know that's Santa Claus. That's not God, right? The old white beard and a big chair, that's not God. So let's talk about what God is to you. And once we get rid of that human image, you know, even those people that say, I don't know that I believe in God you end up finding with them. And and I don't care if you don't believe in God. I'm not going to push you to believe in God. That's a personal relationship. That's not something I can impose on anyone. And you can be a very good Jew and not believe in God. You know, if that's the way you connect, so be it. But I find that most people have a connection with God. They just don't call it God. Because when they say the word God, they think that it's a person. And When I start asking them about their lights and about, you know, what do you think? How do you think the world came into being? And do you think that there is some kind of a higher authority or power behind it? And people say, oh, yeah, that, yes. So we start from this place of, okay, so let's see, you may be using other words to describe the same thing that I describe with the word God. And from there, we start this journey of trying to get closer to God, right? And I always say to people, for me, God is a very close friend. God is somebody that I can go to and talk about being sad, about being happy. It's like having an imaginary friend, which we all had when we were little. And then we became too cynical and (laughs) lost the ability to talk to that invisible friend and they say, God is my invisible friend. I, I, I talk to God all the time. And honestly, it's not always through prayer. I talk to God a lot more outside of prayer than through prayer. And it's, I'm having such a great day. Thank you so much, God. This is wonderful. Or today has been especially different. It's a difficult day. I need a godly hug. Can you give me a hug? And I feel that hug. Right. So I try to allow the students to take whatever time they need to build this new image of God that each and every one of them is going to create. And I start from text because I I really think that text is a great way to start anything. And reading Torah and having them read the stories and see how much that the whole context is so similar to our lives today. That's, you know, when I mentioned before the road to connection, those are the roads that bring us to this connection. And as we connect more to the text, we connect more to God as well. I love that you said that because the Torah is really our guidebook. And I also like that you mentioned just talking to God, because I remember my my dad's wife, she's also an educator, and she always says to me, she's a Montessori teacher, and she always encourages me, you know, make sure you're talking, showing your children that you're talking to God. And 
even if it's just a short thing that you're saying, thank you, God, for you like what you said, thank you, God, I'm having a great day today, or thank you, God, for this parking space, or, you know, even something that we might think is trivial. It's so important for our children, for people to hear us talking about God and talking to God and knowing that we can have that connection at any time. Right. You mentioned Torah, and I know this is something that we are all still, I guess, trying to figure out in Jewish education, but how can we really help our students build a strong Torah foundation? And this can be for young children. This can be for adults, too. I believe that, obviously, the text needs to be taught to every age. I think Torah needs to be taught to one-year-olds. Torah needs to be taught to 10-year-olds. Torah needs to be taught to adults. It needs to be taught to everyone because it is our foundation. It is where Judaism comes from. Really, like a house can't stand without the foundation. It's the same thing here. But what I think is the most important is to allow every learner, regardless of the age, to find their connection in the relevancy of the text. So when I'm reading some stories, and and when I say stories, it doesn't have to be, you know, from the book of Bereshit, from Genesis, where we have most stories, right? It could could be even from uh, Leviticus, from Vaikra. When I'm reading a passage, I try to have the learners answer the question, what do you think this is talking about? What What do you see in this text? You know, before we look at what Rashi says or what Maimonides says or what the Ibn Ezra says or even what some of the modern rabbis say, what do you say? Because I believe that Torah is written for every single human being. Of course, I'm not comparing myself to Rashi. I certainly am not comparing my students to Rashi. I do believe that when Any learner reads the text, there is something there that speaks to them. At that point, that's what I'm going to focus on. Because once we understand that Torah is mine, that I can find myself in that book, that the book is talking to me, that it is about my family, and that the stories that are there are not stories that happened thousands of years ago, that too, but that they are stories that are happening in my life right now. That's when I understand how amazing and important this text is. And from there, we can start building. I think that's so important what you said about connecting with the text. And so with that, how important is Hebrew and understanding Hebrew and having a thorough knowledge of Hebrew? I would love all of my learners to have a solid level of Hebrew, maybe not fluent, but at least solid so that they could read the text in the original. But I have two choices. I can either spend my time working on that, which might take years. By the time they finally get it, they haven't learned everything else. It's the same thing with kids. I think we focus too much on the language. And again, of course, there is nothing like reading in the original. Nothing. I say this to everybody, no matter what language a text was written, when you read a translation, it is not the same text. Fiddler on the Roof in English is not the original Fiddler on the Roof, right? The the original stories of Shalom Aleichem. I'm sorry, it's just not. Brazilian literature translated into English loses a lot of it. And, And it works with every language. The problem is that if I could have everything in the ideal world, then it would be amazing. But in the real world, I want people to understand the importance of the message And if it has to be read in English, let's do it. This is not new. This is not crazy. You know, the rabbis in the Talmud say that you are allowed to pray in the language of the country if you do not understand what you're reading when you're praying. Uh, There are instances where this is written and discussed in Judaism. So 
What I do, if I know that I'm dealing with a group of people that are not fluent in Hebrew, I do always try to bring some of the shorashim, some of the roots to show them, right? What does it mean? Uh, something that has the word kadosh or kodesh or kiddush, these things are all related. What what is the concept that is being taught? Right. So that I try to do. I think it's important that I do the same thing with tzedakah, that, you know, tzedakah and tzedek, what is, how do they connect? And I do that with several roots because I think that is important. But the majority of my learners do not have Hebrew fluency. Okay. Do you ever have non-Jewish people maybe people who want to be a Noahide or whatever, reach out to you and say, oh, I want to learn. Can you teach me? So I've had a couple of non-Jewish students. I screen very carefully okay, because I want to make sure I I have no problem teaching Judaism to a non-Jew. I really have no problem. I just need to make sure that the intention is the right one. Right. So I've had people, for example, that were dating Jews and were considering maybe one day I'll convert, but I'm not ready to go to a conversion class. I'm not there yet. I would like to learn a little bit more about Judaism. Is it okay? Absolutely. It's my pleasure to do that. But I've had instances, for example, where it's very clear that what they want to do is proselytize inside my class. And then, of uh, course, and I'm sorry, but I will not do that. Yeah. In our reality, in, you know, current world, there are a number of people that are dating non-Jews or are married to non-Jews. In my ideal situation, I would love these people to become Jewish. Yeah. And even if they don't become Jewish, I would love them to be a little more fluent in Judaism so that they can support raising Jewish children. Definitely. And so in that sense, I would rather not turn a person away. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And I guess, too, there's the Internet. So people can look on the Internet, but then at least they know that they would be getting the quality and correct information studying with you or, you know, someone who actually is a qualified individual to learn from. Right. The problem I know I mentioned that you can find information online anywhere. And it's true. The problem with internet is also that a, you need to know who you're learning from, who's giving you the information, right? I saw a lot of this happening in the last couple of months where tons of Jewish people posted on social media. Well, Judas, my religion uh, is in favor of abortion, right? With the whole abortion conversation in America, right? And the truth is, that is simply a wrong statement. And a lot of Jews that were posting this don't understand, yes, Judaism does allow for abortion. There's no question in certain cases, Judaism even mandates abortion. But the blanket statement, Judaism approves abortion, is simply wrong. And I was very concerned about the number of people that were getting this information from Facebook and sharing it with others and saying, oh, Judaism says, and like, uh, it's not that simple. It's a lot more complex. Yeah. So it, it is preferable that people learn with, you know, educators or with, with rabbis, with cantors, and, or people that are more knowledgeable and not just from the internet. Right. It's not one of those issues that is black and white, that just, yes, it's always allowed or not always allowed. It's a case-by-case basis. And I agree with you. I also saw people writing and saying that. And I think we all must remember to just be mindful about the things that we're putting out there. And uh, because each one of us is an example, you know, we're leading by example and we're, we're supposed to be a light to the nations. Right. And so when we're saying different things, I think we have to be so careful. Correct. I think every Jew has a responsibility to present Judaism as Judaism is as, and not as they would like Judaism to be. I agree 100%. What have you found to be your biggest challenge that you faced as an educator? 
So I'm not sure if your question is about the learners or in the education community in general. So let me answer both of them. Sure, that would be perfect. Okay. So from the perspective of an educator and teaching in a class, what are the challenges? And I think that one of the challenges I had has actually changed now with COVID. One of the challenges I had was that sometimes older people really want to be learning, but they're not as mobile as others and driving at night is complicated or sometimes even driving during the day is not that easy. And some of them might need hearing aids and then it interferes with a microphone and things like that. And honestly, that has been taken care of with online learning. That is one advantage of online learning. The other challenge that we have is the resistance that many people that would love learning Judaism have that image that Judaism is old, that it's something that it, you know is for those who came from the old country, but the world today is different. You know, my, when my children were younger and they would say to me, mommy, you don't understand the world's a different place today. And I would say, no, technology is different. The world is not different. The world <laughs> is exactly the same. Nothing has changed since creation. To get people to just come and hear a little bit. If you don't like it, you don't have to stay. You know, I, I'm not going to force you to take a course, but I think you're going to love it. You're going to see how relevant it is. And lo and behold, I have never had a student that was resisting and that ended up joining leave because this is not for me. This has never happened. So I think the challenge is to get them through the door. Yeah. Right. Don't be afraid. I also think one of the difficulties when you work with adults is that the older you are, the less likely, and when I say older, it's not a question. It makes no difference now if you're 40 or 60 for what I'm saying. It is harder for you to admit that there is an area in which you are ignorant. Mm-hmm. So if you are a very successful doctor or lawyer or architect or engineer or computer technician or whatever, right, and you know nothing about Judaism, you don't want to sit in a class and admit that because it makes you feel ignorant. Telling adults that there is no such thing because they might not have the information, but they have so much life experience to read the information and interpret the information. And that actually it is wonderful to have a doctor or an architect or an engineer in a class, because when I'm reading a text, they're going to bring a perspective that is a different perspective. And so if we get them to get past this feeling that how can I be so ignorant in Judaism and understand that it's not embarrassing. I am ignorant in medicine. You know, it's not embarrassing to not know everything there is to know about everything in the world. And it's totally okay for this not to be an area of expertise for you. And you still have a lot to offer. Once we get them to understand that, I feel that, oof, now I can relax and can have them, they, they start really getting into it. I feel like that ties into what you mentioned a bit before about asking your students the question about the text and really allowing them to bring their perspective to it before diving into the commentaries, Rashi, and, you know, what did they say? Like really diving into what they think about what's the purpose and what is the lesson and what is it, what is Hashem trying to tell us there that allows people and their personality and background and their thought process to really shine because, okay, they can make the Torah their own and really connect with it. And you know what I love the most? Sometimes you do that. You ask them to read a text and tell me what you get out of this text. And they say something that is exactly what some famous rabbi in the Talmud said. And then I show them that. And I say, do you see what just happened here? You just said the same thing that that famous rabbi said. Wow. 
right? And they start feeling more competent because truly they are competent. They may not have the knowledge, but they have so much background in their lives that they bring to the interpretation of the text. That's a challenge on the learning side. Now, I think we have another challenge. And just this week, I have seen many people posting the same thing on Facebook, probably because schools are going to go back shortly. There are tons of Jewish schools that still do not have completed staff for the fall. School starts in a couple of weeks in Florida, in New York, and then another few more weeks, but we're all starting school. And I've seen something posted over and over again saying there is no teacher shortage. There is a shortage of jobs that treat educators with the dignity and the pay that they deserve. That, I think, is a challenge that we have in the Jewish world. The educators in the olden days used to be treated with so much respect. I don't know that they made good money, but at least they had respect. And parents thanked them and learners thanked them. That no longer is the norm. It still exists in some places, but it's not the norm. And when you go into a field that is not a high-paying field, now, for some of us, I would rather not be in a high-paying field and love what I do every moment of the day. But it is frustrating. And some people don't have that option because they have expenses that they're, they have to pay and they have to get, you know, better salaries and, right. and better recognition for the value of the work that they are doing. So that's a challenge that I think Jewish communities are going to have to deal with because unfortunately, less and less of our young, amazing, brilliant Jewish kids want to go into education. It's true. Well, they how can they afford it? You have three, four, five, six, however many kids and you're paying for Jewish day schools. You can't make it on a teacher's salary. It's exactly. not enough. Exactly. We we're just talking about this yesterday because we got together with some relatives. They have three kids in school and they were talking about just the cost and just try how to make it work. And people have to make these high salaries in order to just be able to afford school. And that's not even including food and this and that and all these other things that we have to pay for. So I have no idea how we fix that. And we need quality educators. We do. And, and what people sometimes don't understand is that when you are an educator, you are not just transmitting information. You are a mashpia, you are a mentor. Um, I think that successful education is one in which your learners, whether they're, they're kids, young kids, or older kids, or adults, where your learners feel comfortable coming to you with questions that are not necessarily, uh, you know, information questions, that are life questions. And, you know, they want to know from you what what is Judaism's view on this? Yeah. Whatever the this is, you know, I am debating, should I move to this place that has a wonderful community, but doesn't have that many job opportunities or the other way around. So, so people come to you with, with life questions and what they want is that mentorship, that Jewish mentorship and It's very, very important that we bring into education the people that are passionate about it, the people that are not going to see themselves as nine to five workers because educators are not nine to five workers, Um, but that these people also need to have vacation, off hours, good pay, respect. Otherwise, as you said, we're not going to attract people in. And we are the ones, educators are the ones to inspire the next generations. We are. And it's a tough job. I mean, if if you're an educator, if we're educators who, like you said, are, we have, we're passionate, we 
want to inspire our students. We want to develop lifelong learners. And, you know, like you said, it's not a nine to five job. I mean, when I was still working in the classroom, I was sitting and and planning and always thinking about, okay, how am I going to connect with my students? What am I going to do? It's it's a constant process, you know, how to make yourself better and, and to connect with your students better. So we put our all into it. Right. And to not always get that back is very hard. And I could see why educators do get burnt out from it. And it's sad. It's, it really is very sad because we need educators at all times. On the other hand, I, I will tell you that um, you know that I am I'm starting a new project together with two colleagues of mine, Batsheva Frankel and Sari Kapitnikov, um, that we decided that we're going to help adults become the educators of their children and grandchildren. So not only are we going to teach them, but we're going to make sure that they come out of our sessions with tools to teach the other people, whether it is, you know, five-year-old children or teenagers or even other adults. We want them to pass it down, right? So that it really becomes a chain of transmission. Um, So we as educators prepare them to educate in smaller groups. We need that. We desperately need that. We need more people serving in that family education role within their own families. I did want you to mention that project you guys were working on, and it reminds me of a recent interview on Kosher Money. I forget the host name, so I'm sorry about that, but they interviewed Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and he actually mentioned this about the cost of education and why parents ought to consider maybe homeschooling or that kind of model where the parents have more of an active role in their children's education. And so that definitely ties in with what the three of you are doing. Can you talk a little bit more about what that will look like? Are you guys going to be offering workshops to parents? Is it a certain time frame that parents will be participating? So what we would like to do, we're starting at the end of this month. We're doing Rosh Chodesh Elul, the, the beginning of the month of Elul, the month before Rosh Hashanah is when we're starting. We want to do a monthly workshop online. Uh, for many reasons, we want it to be online. First, it allows us to use different kinds of technology. Also, the three of us are in different areas of the country. We want to, you know, reach out to everybody in the country. Um, And what we're going to be doing is bringing very deep concepts. So the first one is tshuva. And as I always say to people, please, please, please do not think of tshuva only as repentance. Repentance has, you know, a, a certain weight to that word that doesn't really reflect what tshuva is. Um, So we're going to have a solid, deep discussion based on text of what is tshuva. And then we're going to teach these adults. Now, this is how you talk about this to three-year-olds, to 80-year-olds, to 15-year-olds, to college kids, but not just talking. Here are games you can do, activities you can do, fun things that will help different ages connect to these deep concepts. So we want to do this once a month in the beginning, um, always thinking about what is the next main topic to discuss. So for example, we already said that for Purim, we want to discuss the concept of God being hidden, right? Hester Panim, God hides God's face, uh, which is also a very difficult concept. And how do you explain this to children? So we're not doing, and not because there's anything bad about it, but it, there's a lot of it out there already. Uh, we're not doing the regular, oh, okay, on Rosh Hashanah, you eat apples and you dip them in honey, and this is what you say, and this is a blessing over the candles. There are other people doing it and doing it well. Right. We are taking a different angle, and we're going to dive deep and to teach the adults how to teach deeply to their children. 
That's such a great idea. I feel like that is definitely needed. I look forward to finding more about that once you guys get that up and running, because I think that's important for families to be able to transfer that to their children and have that, like you said, that connection, that chain that continues to um, grow. How did you guys connect? How did you guys even come up, I guess, with this idea? So we met up. Well, I've, I've met Basheva. I met Basheva probably eight years ago at an educators conference, and Sari, I met last year online at an educators conference, and we started the three of us with other people. We started iGen. iGen is a group of independent Jewish educators to support each other. All of us have work in roles where we do not work for a or a school or for an organization. We basically work for ourselves, which has its own challenges. So we created this group to support each other. And throughout the year, we have we had many meetings. And Sari Bachav and I started talking a lot about education and what can we do. And we came to this, well, we this is needed. Put that aside for a second. We also knew there was something else that was needed. And we realized that a lot of professional development that is done in Jewish schools, especially supplementary schools, but also day schools, is basically telling teachers how to manage their classrooms. Right. So there's nothing in it for them. Like you come to professional development and we're going to give you something that we want you to do for somebody else. And we said, what happened to the concept of Torah Lishma, of learning for the sake of learning? Why are the professional development opportunities not including in them learning for the sake of the teacher, just so that the teacher can learn something new for themselves? So we took these two things and we brought them together and we said, there's a commonality. And the commonality is we need to treat adults as adults and we need to treat children as children. And they both deserve to learn. And they both deserve to be have fun and to be excited about the learning. So we started this project, Door to Door Delivery, where we have two different branches of workshops. One is specifically for professional development, where we go in, we do a Torah Lishma study with the teachers, and then we teach them how to pass it on to their kids. And the other one is with lay learners, where we do the same thing, but now they're not teaching in classrooms, they're not teaching in grades, they are teaching their family and family friends. That's fantastic. I love that idea. It's totally needed. And that is so awesome. Wish you all Hatzlacha Rabba on that. And that's amazing. Thank you. Of course. Since we talked about education and Jewish educators, what advice would you give to new Jewish educators who are just beginning their journey? The first thing I would say is if you are not absolutely passionate about it, don't come (laughs) to Jewish education Um, for many reasons. It's not an easy career. Now, if you are passionate, the reward that you get from the aha moments you see in your children or your adults, from the spark of connection moments that happen right in front of you, that reward is priceless. So if you are coming into this journey first, make sure that you connect with other educators. It can be very lonely out there. And no, I learned this the hard way and I am now on the other side. Um, When I was starting, I was always very afraid to reach out to the, quote, you know, important educators, those that had a lot more experience. I felt, oh, this person's not ever going to give me any attention. You know, I'm a no one. I'm just starting and they're important. That's not true. I had incredible guides and people who were always willing to help me when I had questions, whether questions of 
administrative matters or question of topic matters, they were always there for me. If you're starting in this journey, search for those of us that have been around for a longer time because we can hold your hand. We can tell you the good, the bad, the ugly, but most importantly, we can help you figure it out and show you how beautiful of a journey this is. The other thing that I would say is you cannot be a successful educator unless you are a successful learner. It is extremely important to learn. If you participate in weekly classes or in monthly classes, if you learn alone or you learn with friends, it doesn't make a difference. But when we are teaching, we're pouring out and pouring out and pouring out and you need to replenish. And the way to replenish is to learn. So those are the important things. You know, reach out to somebody that has more experience. Don't be afraid to do it. Um, every educator loves, loves nurturing and guiding those who are beginning their journey and learn, 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 learn. The more you learn, the more passionate you are to share this with your students. Wow. That's wonderful advice. Well, last question here, Sandra, what does successful Jewish education look like in the future to you? As a result of this new project of ours, I will say that the main thing that I see is I want to see an involvement of all ages in education. And I want us Jewish educators to understand that we can no longer split education by age. We do have to work in a more organic way with families, with More and more, people are not going to start bringing different age children to to Hebrew school at different hours of the day, different days of the week. So we might have to learn how to work with different ages in the same setting. I think that's important. I think it's important to go back to family education. In the 70s and 80s, family education was very important. And then it sort of died out. I believe it's fundamentally important to do family education. And I think that successful Jewish education means that our learners are going to become, uh, you know, they're going to require more from us. Um, They're going to challenge us more, which is great. Uh, a, a Jewish educator should not feel, and, and that might be one of the differences of education in general, you want to share. We should not be the, you know, the ones who hold the information with us. Um, we want more people to be knowledgeable. I want my learners to be very knowledgeable. I want them to go and learn with anyone. I don't own them. You know, sometimes People say to me, oh, how do you feel if your student that has been taking classes with you for X number of years decides to go to another educator? And I am thrilled with that. I am not at all upset. That just means that you feel that you need to explore more. Successful Jewish education means involving all ages, being open to share everything that you have, and even sometimes to say to your learners, look, there's this fantastic instructor that you can go learn with as well. I think obviously we need to have uh, a little more respect for what we do. That is one of our challenges as we discussed before. But in the end, successful Jewish education is creating connection and having people excited about being Jewish. I'm so glad that you said that. And like we spoke about previously, that's one of the reasons we created this podcast is first, we wanted to talk with Jewish educators. We felt that COVID has been very hard for Jewish educators and being able to connect with others and hear other stories. And to know that we've been here for a long time, because that's one of the things that we as Jews has We've taken pride in our education and 
My hope is we continue to do that. And I think I agree with you. My, Ari and I have talked about that a lot, about family education. And we really need families to learn from all ages. And, you know, our learning doesn't stop just because we reach bar bat mitzvah or just because we do this or that. We have to continue learning and growing. And we're going to include the link to your workshop. Sandra, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. And I really appreciate it. Thank you, Yasmina. Thank you, Ari, for creating this podcast. This is amazing. And it's so important that all of us educators have podcasts as this, not just to share our teaching, but also to learn from all our colleagues that are out there. This is very important work that you guys are doing. Wow, thank you. It's I'm so honored to hear that. It's, we've really enjoyed it. And sometimes with young kids, it can be loud. You have to finagle things sometimes, but it's really been such a joy and a pleasure. And I am so excited to see what's going to be with Jewish education. I think we're all excited and hopefully we will all see a lot of success in this field. We need it. As you said, this is what has sustained us generation after generation after generation. Okay, all the best. To support our podcast, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash Jewish Education Experience Podcast.